Father, I, <clears throat> again, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is timeless. And it applies always, and we're grateful and thankful for that. Uh, we pray for the presence of your Holy Spirit this morning as we, again, we're going to open up your book. We pray that you would accompany us, that you would give us the ability to make it a permanent value. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, did you ever wonder why some people seem to get all of the breaks and other people seem to get broken? I mean, why is it that, that some people seem to get away with murder Another step out of line just by an inch or so, and they get clobbered. It just doesn't seem fair. And so I want to talk this morning about the difference between fairness and justice. Because I think we have a fundamental problem with the way God views those two subjects. I mean, what do you think of when you think of the word fairness? I mean, what does it mean to be completely fair. I think it means even Stephen. I think it means a complete absence of bias and everyone gets treated equally. You know, my understanding of fairness goes back to dividing up candy when, when, when you're a little kid. You know, what would happen if you went to your mom and dad with a big candy bar and you asked if they would divide it between you and your brother? And let's say your mom or dad breaks the candy bar and, and one size of it is, is three quarters of the candy bar and another size of it is, is, is a quarter of the candy bar. And he, they hand that to your brother and they hand the quarter size to you. What's the first sentence that would come out of your mouth? I said, that's not fair, right? The reason why it's not fair is because it's not evenly distributed. It's not even, Stephen. It's not 50-50. It's 75-25, and that's not fair. And so the universal solution to dividing up candy bars, as far as I could remember, was that whoever divides it, the other person gets to pick the piece. I think that's the only way that you can guarantee even remotely that it's evenly divided among kids. And so our notion of fairness basically consists of, of completely equal and unbiased treatment for everyone involved. And even the dictionary agrees. This is what the dictionary describes fairness as. This is a noun, the state, condition, or quality of being fair, fair enough, or free from bias or injustice, even handedness. That's pretty clear. But when it comes to this idea of justice, remember we're comparing fairness and justice. When it comes to the idea of justice, things get a little more murky. Folks often confuse justice with fairness, but they're not the same thing. Tim Keller gives a good working definition for what justice in the biblical sense means. This is what he said. He said, the Hebrew word for justice, mishfet, occurs in its various forms more than 200 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. Its most basic meaning is to treat people equitably. It means acquitting or punishing every person on the merits of the case, regardless of race or social status. But mishvat means more than just the punishment of wrongdoing. It also means giving people their rights. Mishvat then is giving people what they are due, whether punishment or protection or care. And so this morning, I, I want to examine the lives of two kings of Babylon who existed during the times of Daniel 
And I want to compare the lives of Nebuchadnezzar with his successor, Belshazzar. Because those two kings of Babylon received extraordinarily different responses from God for their sin. And so I want to look at this issue of God's fairness and justice with regard to these two kings. So let me just explain what it is they did and what happened to them. The first one is Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was a man of extraordinary brutality. King Zedekiah was, was one of the kings that was under him, and he rebelled against him. So, so he basically had his sons slaughtered before his eyes, and then he blinded him so that the very last thing he would see is his sons being executed. I mean, he was clearly a, a murderer, a kidnapper, a blasphemer. Uh, he stole the sacred items from the temple in Jerusalem. He placed them in the treasury of the temple of his God in Babylon. And so we understand Nebuchadnezzar is well on his way down that six-lane highway to hell. God, in his mercy, directly intervened in his life. Now, it was no doubt. It was, a, it was a severe mercy. I mean, God took away the king's sanity. And for seven years, God reduced Nebuchadnezzar down to a raving lunatic, crawling on all fours like a beast. But in the end, his eyes were opened. And this is what he declared in, in, in Daniel 4. He says, To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. So, so Nebuchadnezzar, he's, he's declaring to all the world, the mercies of God. God has spoken into his life. He's intervened in his life. He's demonstrated his mighty power and convinced Nebuchadnezzar of the error of his ways. And so we say, good for you, Nebuchadnezzar. Now let's take a look at the next chapter in the book of Daniel, chapter 5, and see what took place in the life of Nebuchadnezzar's successor, Belshazzar. This is Daniel 5.1. It says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousands. Now, you have to understand, it's been almost three decades since Nebuchadnezzar has died, and the kingdom is actually, it's divided between Belshazzar and his father, Nabonidus. And both of these kings were extremely unpopular. Also, for two and a half years now, Babylon has been under siege by the kings of Persia. But Belshazzar, he, he couldn't care less. The city of Babylon is, in his estimation, an impenetrable fortress. I mean, it's got walls in some places that are 350 feet high, 87 feet wide. I mean, even the mighty river Euphrates flows through the city of Babylon, so she could hardly be starved or driven by thirst into submission. And so this party that Belshazzar is throwing, it's part politics, but it's also part depravity. I mean, on the one hand, he's demonstrating how little he cares about the threat of Persia. On the other hand, he's also demonstrating how wicked and wanton he has become since the days of his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. So, so the king throws this, this great feast, and as he's getting drunker and drunker, he gets more and more debased. Until finally, he remembers those sacred vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had stored away in the treasury of the temple of his god. You see, they were still in storage because Nebuchadnezzar had come to know the God of Abraham and thus would never have used those vessels for anything other than their intended purpose. But not so for Belshazzar. Verse 2 says, 
Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Belshazzar's flat out. He's just mocking God. He's confused God's patience for weakness. And, you know, I, I know for the longest time as a new Christian, I wondered, since God is he's all-powerful, he's almighty, why does he tolerate people doing terrible things like mocking him to his face like we do today? And I wondered for how long would it change a culture if somebody mocked God to his face and God answered directly and immediately? Well, wonder no more. We, I think we have proof here in Nebuchadnezzar's life that a direct intervention by God lasted the very most maybe 30 or 40 years, sometimes even less than that, because it was that long ago when God personally intervened for the first time in Nebuchadnezzar's life. If you remember, he was attempting to execute Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a fiery furnace because they wouldn't worship this golden idol that he had set up. Well, not only did God render the furnace powerless to harm them, but Nebuchadnezzar also saw the angel of God there in the midst of the furnace with them. And this is what he said. It says, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. So he acknowledges this spectacular miracle, but that miracle was not enough to convince him that Daniel's God was the real God. See, it was more than a year later that Nebuchadnezzar lost his sanity. He had forgotten all about God. He was bragging about himself as the source of his power and greatness. When God finally says, okay, Nebuchadnezzar, you are done. Nebuchadnezzar chose to believe that his great power and might came from his own strength and power. And so God gives him this seven-year lesson in humility. For seven years, Nebuchadnezzar crawls on all fours like a beast until his sanity returns to him and he acknowledges the overwhelming sovereignty of God. So consider Nebuchadnezzar the next time you think, well, if God would only do a spectacular miracle, surely these people, they'd surely believe. Well, now, it's decades after that, Nebuchadnezzar is gone. All traces of God's miraculous intervention in his life have now disappeared. And in his place is debauchery, drunkenness, and a, a desire to mock God to his face. And again, I know that one of the most recurring problems that people have with the God of the Bible is it's not just, it's not just the presence of evil, but what seems to be evil's flourishing. And it's a great encouragement to me, and I share this with others as much as I can, that, that God is not at all unaware that he's got that kind of a reputation as a God who won't do anything. I mean, listen to some of the complaints of his own prophets and psalmists as they pour their hearts out to him. This is Jeremiah 12. He says to God, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them, and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. 
You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. Then in Psalm 10, it says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are is, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. And in Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph, he says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And they're all essentially saying the same thing. I mean, God, the wicked laugh at you. They, they, they mock you. And their lives seem to be going extremely well. So what gives? Well, it's important to understand not only the nature of these complaints against God's inaction towards evil, but also understand how they wound up in the Bible. They wound up there because God put them there. So don't think for a moment that God is unaware of the complaints that even good folks have about why evil prospers and God seems to do absolutely nothing about it. Our text this morning is one of the few times when God once again does precisely what we all wish that he would do all of the time. I mean, he takes a bad guy. He takes a really, really bad guy named Belshazzar. And he demonstrates through him what immediate judgment looks like. So we go back to this party that Belshazzar is throwing, and he's now very drunk, and he's bored with simple depravity. And so he insists on having a few rounds using the sacred vessels from God's temple in Jerusalem. Verse 3 says, "Then, Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Now, there's only a handful of times in all of Scripture where God's judgment is as immediate and direct as this was. And as brash and as loud and as drunk and as arrogant as Belshazzar was, was he terrified at God's response. It says, then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. So Belshazzar, he's he's instantly sobered by the appearance of this hand in the mysterious writing, which, in case you didn't know, this is where the cliche, you can read the writing on the wall, this is where this comes from. Well, Belshazzar obviously couldn't. He knew for certain that something was terribly bad, but he just didn't know what. And just like Nebuchadnezzar, he, he calls in all of his wise men desperate to have an explanation, and once again, they all fail. It says, then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change 
There is a man in your kingdom in whom there is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, was found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, <clears throat> and he will show the interpretation. So, so here's the queen. She comes into the banqueting hall, not because she wants part of the revelry, but because she's heard all the commotion. It says, because of the words of the king and his lord. She's this last link that they have with the past, and her comments beg the question, why was Daniel no longer a person of power or influence in Babylon? And so she goes on to extol in her own understanding, Daniel's understanding and wisdom, claiming that he was full of the spirit of the holy gods. And she goes on to say, because of his excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding, Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief. And so, so we picture this woman, and she's, she's coming upon this terrified scene full of debauchery and rot, and now all of the partiers are they're, they're sitting in stunned silence. They're, they're terrified of what's coming next. And she makes this not-so-veiled reference to the glory days when Daniel was honored and revered and respected. And she's comparing it to life as it is now, and the only thing that is honored is the king's drunken orgies. And even the king acknowledges Daniel. It says, then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I've heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Well, not to belabor the obvious, but with Daniel's gifts being so extraordinary, why wasn't he part of the leadership of the Babylonians? I mean, why is it that now that Belshazzar knows he's in trouble, now's the first time he calls on Daniel? I mean, where's Daniel been for the last 30 years? Well, let me tell you why I think Daniel's been absent all these years. What in all likelihood precluded Daniel being part of Babylon's new leadership, even though he's so extraordinarily gifted? It was Daniel's holiness. You see, his connection to a holy God made his presence in an unholy government out of the question. That's my guess. You see, Daniel's giftedness came at the price of his holiness. And his contemporaries were so unnerved by that holiness, they, they preferred to forego his gifts. I mean, have you ever been disinvited to something because of your holiness? You know, I once had an employee named Pat. Uh, many of you even remember him. He had a very, very low opinion of evangelical Christians. He wasn't a believer himself. He was from Ireland, had a very thick Irish accent. <clears throat> he used to call them holy people. And he said that with his tongue firmly in cheek. You see, holiness to him meant that you clearly thought you were a grade better than everyone else, that you were a, a hypocrite, that you were blind to your own shortcomings, 
but you were quite willing to point out the shortcomings of others. He actually said, in his opinion, holy people were the ones who thought Jesus was their cosmic butler, that he just would come into their lives and sweep up after them, cleaning up all of their sins, allowing them to live their lives just like anybody else, but to think they were better than everybody else. You see, before I became a full-time pastor, I owned a woodworking business that Pat worked in. And there was lots of people who would come into my shop. And Pat always used to ask me when somebody would come to pay a visit if they knew that I knew them well. He'd come up to me afterwards and say, was that guy a holy person? And I, I would humor him. And I, if the person was a Christian, I, I would say, oh, yeah, he's been holy for about five years. Or, or maybe that woman's been holy for a long, long time. And that person's almost holy, but not quite there yet. And some of these holy persons that he actually got to know over the years that he worked for me, I could tell he genuinely liked because he saw them as being open and honest and interested in him and in his life. Not at all typical of what he had experienced. And it made me wonder about the church as a whole. See, more often than not, the term holier than now seems like apropos, an apropos description of believers to people who don't fully understand the gospel. The holy people that my employee, Pat, grew to know and like were all people who understood that they were sinners saved by grace and that whatever holiness they had didn't come from them, but came from the presence of God's Holy Spirit within them. Because when you give your life over to Christ, he sends his Holy Spirit into your life as a gift of faith. And what my Employee said in jest about holy people was a lot more true than he understood. See, make no mistake about it. The more you draw near to God, the more he will draw near to you. And the more that happens, the more people will sense that you've been with Jesus and the more uncomfortable they will become. So how do you balance off being a, a person of integrity and holiness like Daniel was and not being considered standoffish or, or holier than thou? Well, I, I thought about all the holy people that my employees seemed to enjoy. And to a person, these were all folks who took a genuine interest in him. They'd come into the shop and they'd go right up to him and say, Hey, Pat, how you doing? How's your life? What's going on? I mean, the fact that they cared about him, even on the most simplest of levels, made all the difference in the world. You see, if you bear the name of Christ, if you live the Christian life, people are going to start off with the idea that you are standoffish. That you are holier than thou, and that you think you're better. The best possible defense against that kind of thinking is to prove just the opposite. Do exactly what Jesus did. He reached out to people. And oftentimes, the funkier the person, the more he reached out. And understand that clearly requires some judgment. Now, I'm sure the last place on earth that Daniel wanted to be is at a party with guests who are engaged in mocking his God. And the queen mother had no interest at all as well, but Daniel was willing because he had always used his position in Babylon to promote his God, his people, and the good of the people that he was surrounded with. But even that was an obedience to God. This is what God said. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all exiles whom I sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. 
but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Daniel was just that kind of person. I mean, even though he was surrounded by, by, by people, as we often in this culture are, who have no concept of God, nor any desire to acquire one, he still was the source of light and blessing to those people. And when push came to shove for Belshazzar, he said of the Daniel that he had ignored literally for years, quote, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom, my whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Oh, Belshazzar was absolutely correct, but the, the principle still holds today. You see, we are a chosen people, and we're living among people who often laugh at and mock the God we serve. That is until the bottom drops out of their lives. Then you just may find yourself in a position that Daniel found himself in, with someone absolutely desperate and at the end of their rope, realizing that what he thought was worthy of mocking is now something he's desperately interested in. Unfortunately, in Belshazzar's case, it was too little, too late. It says, then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. See, what Belshazzar did not know or even begin to realize was that the Persians were far more clever than he thought. You see, his fortress-like city was surrounded by walls, like I said, some almost 350 feet high, some 87 feet wide. And the city had the Euphrates River flowing within it. So there was always a source of water that would even allow them to grow their own food within the walls of the city. What Belshazzar never considered was that the Persians would redirect the flow of the Euphrates so it would literally be cut off and then the Persian army would enter the city underneath the walls that were now empty. Everything that Daniel predicted would take place actually took place that very night. The army entered into the city through the dry riverbed under the walls. Daniel 5.30 says, That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Now, I titled this message A Tale of Two Kings because there's such a stark contrast between God's response to two very different, yet very wicked kings. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar is pursued by God. He receives a severe mercy as his eyes opened, and he embraces God's truth. Belshazzar, on the other hand, receives no mercy, but a severe and almost instantaneous judgment. And if you remember, we opened up this message talking about the difference between fairness and justice. And I asked the question, did you ever wonder why some people get all the breaks and other people get broken? 
Well, I mentioned that fairness is by definition even-handedness. That is to say that fairness demands that everyone be treated equally. Now, would you say that Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar were both treated fairly? I mean, on the surface, I would have to say no. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar appeared to be cut years and years of slack, and his severe mercy was, involved seven more years of God's patience. Belshazzar steps over the line but once, and there's no going back. But here's the principle of justice that we all operate from. As Tim Keller puts it, Mishfat justice then is giving people what they are due, whether punishment or protection or care. And God stated it clearly through Abraham. You remember Abraham is having this big argument with God about destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham asks God if he's willing to destroy Sodom, if there's righteous people within it. And this is what he says. This is Abraham's words to God. He says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Well, the simple answer to Abraham's question is yes. The judge of all the earth will always do what is just. And I take that to mean that there will come a time when every single thing that God has ever done will be revealed in its entirety, and that at that point, every one of us will recognize his justice. You see, everyone receiving God's justice will have gotten his mishfat, precisely what he was due. You know, at this point, we are mere creatures trying to figure out what that means. We're, tr we're trying to figure out the justice of our creator. I've said it many, many times that human beings trying to understand God is a lot like German shepherds trying to understand humans. It's not going to happen. There's too great a distance between those two entities. God knows every single thing about what a just treatment of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar involves. He knows everything there is to know about their personality, their upbringing, their, their relative guilt, and their innocence. And I say relative because God knows that none of us are innocent and all of us stand guilty before him. But that's why God never states, he never states that he owes us fairness. You know what fairness demands? Fairness demands that every single person be treated identically. If you're going to whack up a candy bar into a thousand pieces, every one of those pieces better be one thousandth of that candy bar or it's not fair. Everyone must be treated in the exact same way. And you know what fairness precludes? It precludes grace. If every one of us has to be treated absolutely identically, then every one of us from Adam onward is absolutely lost. And we all then require an identical response regardless of whether we're David or Goliath, the Pharaoh in Egypt or Moses, Belshazzar or Nebuchadnezzar. And there's no doubt that Goliath and Pharaoh and Belshazzar, they were wicked. But there's also no doubt that David and Moses and Nebuchadnezzar, they had wickedness in their life as well. You see, fairness demands that everyone equally pay the price that God has established in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve and reiterated through the prophet Ezekiel. He said, the soul that sins shall die. Well, fairness demands 
that every soul that sins must die. And it isn't satisfied until that happens. Now, justice also demands that every soul who sins must die. But justice can be satisfied in ways that fairness can never be satisfied by a substituted sacrifice as well. See, a God of fairness alone has no other choice but to insist that all die. But our God is not a God of fairness alone, where everyone must be treated identically. He's a God of justice, and he is a God of grace and mercy. And he insists that mercy is not necessarily fair. So what he says in Romans 9. He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Folks, that's not fair. That's not equal treatment for everyone. That is grace for some. And understand this. This is incredibly important to grasp right now. Understand what I'm saying. It's grace for some and what for everyone else? Justice for everyone else. See, the only way that a just God can still be merciful and just is if every single person who's ever been born who doesn't receive mercy receives absolute justice. And God is free to give grace to whom he wishes. I go back to what our definition of justice was as opposed to fairness. I quoted Tim Keller's use of the Hebrew term mishvat as justice. Mishvat then is giving people what they are due whether punishment or protection or care. Well, the problem with justice is that every one of us is due a just punishment. I mean, the wages of sin is death. Now, fairness in this context demands that all of us face death eternally. But God, who was perfectly just, so loved the world that he found a way to provide perfect mercy while still satisfying justice. How God became one of us. He lived the perfect life we were supposed to live, and then he offered that life of perfection up as a just exchange for our lives of sin. Romans 6 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, was that fair? Was everyone treated identically? Well, you could say on one level, absolutely. I mean, the free gift of God's mercy, it goes out wholesale to the entire world virtually millions of times a day. But on another level, if you are at all honest, you have to say no. God says many are called, but few are chosen. I mean, the vast majority of those who receive God's offer are either indifferent to it or insulted by it. And the ones who, who hear the offer and respond later learn that their ability to hear and see came not from within themselves, but from the mercy of God. I mean, Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of work, so that no one may boast. And pay attention to that last part of that verse, so that no one may boast. You see, that's the reason why faith has to be a gift fully given by God and not earned at all by us, so that no one may boast. You remember what Nebuchadnezzar was doing? 
when God's hand of judgment came down on him? Daniel 4.30 says, And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? He was boasting. It says, While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. I don't know if you remember, but Nebuchadnezzar's words, when his mind returned to him, are, are incredibly appropriate. He says this. <clears throat> he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Again, so that no one may boast. Now God was certainly able to, to humble Nebuchadnezzar. Was he able to humble Belshazzar as well? It was certainly. Well, then why didn't he receive God's mercy as well? God's answer is simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. He says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, so that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You see, God has the right to give his mercy to whomever he chooses because, why? Because he has satisfied justice fully. That is to say, every single person who has ever been born will receive justice. Some receive grace and mercy only because justice has been satisfied by Jesus' sacrifice. As Charles Spurgeon put it, he said, God in his infinite mercy has devised a way in which justice can be satisfied and yet mercy can be triumphant. Jesus Christ is the only begotten of the Father. Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the Father, took upon himself the form of a man and offered under divine justice that which was accepted as an equivalent for the punishment due to all his people. So what's our takeaway from all of this? Well, three things. No, number one, we should be absolutely speechless when we fully realize the privilege that we have been given. I mean, there's a reason why the gospel makes perfect sense to us and nonsense to our friends relatives, and neighbors. First Corinthians says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I mean, the whole idea of the cross is silly nonsense to those eyes that have not yet been opened, but our eyes can see. And it's not because we're more clever, more spiritual than they are. It's because we have received a mercy that they as yet have not received. I mean, if you were one of his own, you may not realize it, but you're living a charmed life. That doesn't mean that your life is going to be magically pain-free and charmed in the sense that most people think. Uh, far better to say that if you're one of his, you are living a claimed life. One that Jesus says will never be able to be taken away. This is what Jesus says. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, 
and no one will snatch them out of my hand. God also says that we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. What that also means is that none of the pain, none of the struggle, none of the stress, and none of the hard things in your life will ever go to waste. God will always use it to shape and mold you into the image of his son. God had his hand on Nebuchadnezzar. He did not have his hand on Belshazzar. One received a mercy he never deserved. The other received a justice he absolutely deserved. If you're one of his, you've received a mercy you too do not deserve. And that mercy should revolutionize your life. And second, when it comes down to the bottom line spiritually, we believers, we are all blessed to be Nebuchadnezzars. But we should be looking on in horror at the real possibility that our friends and our relatives and our neighbors, they're, they're standing in Belshazzar's shoes. A time ran out for Belshazzar and he found no mercy from God. All he found was justice. That's all God owes any of us. And third, while we're still alive, the possibility of mercy remains. I mean, you think your friend or your relative, your neighbor is too far gone for God. Consider where Nebuchadnezzar was and where he is now. Consider where you were because no one is ever too far for God's mercy. And God's call still goes out to the entire world and it goes out through us. Now, I've been spending a lot of time this week with Andy. And Andy realizes that his time on earth, barring a miracle, is probably going to be very short. I had the privilege of hearing a conversation he had with one of his loved ones who doesn't know Christ. And I heard him say, look, I know I'm dying. But I have no fear because I know exactly where I'm going. I mean, I heard him pleading with this person to accept the gift of the gospel before it's too late. I was just thinking that Andy's situation brings all of our relationships into crystal clarity when it comes to the gospel. See, the stakes couldn't be higher, and no one knows whose God has chosen to receive mercy instead of justice. And so I'm pleading with you to pray for your friends, pray for your relatives, pray for your neighbors, pray that they heed God's warning before it's too late. And all of us need to resolve, like Andy, to use whatever time God gives you to share the good news that you've received. As Hebrews 3 says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let's pray. Father God, I, I thank you for the incredible gift that we have. We live charmed lives. You have opened our eyes, opened our ears. You have given us the ability to make sense of what the world thinks is absolute nonsense. But what an incredible responsibility that privilege brings. Lord, every one of us know dozens and dozens of Belshazzars Folks who, uh, they may not mock God outright, but their lifestyle might. Their indifference certainly does. I pray that all of us would be just filled with the, not only the knowledge of the privilege we've been given, but also the sense of the obligation that we have to share this good news before it's too late. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.